Hi, my name is Maria Kadabai. I am Head of Programmes at BAFTA um, and welcome to our very first BFI Network and BAFTA crew live stream session um, for with the filmmakers behind the four times BAFTA nominated and BAFTA winning for Sama. We don't need any reminding of that, but um, I know if you um, if people want to see the film again, it is available on Channel 4 at the moment on 4OD. We are joined by director Wad Al-Khatib, co-director and producer Ed Watts and composer Anita Desai. Um, people are calling this precarious times at the moment and something unprecedented. Um, but Wad, I just wanted to come to you first, kind of what you've lived through and what you filmed through was completely unprecedented for kind of most people. So when you first picked up the camera, was it for kind of to document your own personal history or did you always hope that it reached a wider audience? Um, first, like, thank you for very much for making this event still available. Um, and I know like everyone now is uh, struggling with this bad and madness happening all over the world now. Uh, yeah, like I will be back uh, now nine years ago when I pick up the, my phone at, the beginning in 2011 when the Syrian revolution started and at that time I had no idea about how to use this phone or like what the uh, future of that and even um, I had no idea about like what next will be. I was just trying to document every minute we were living through because we were just we've seen how the protests were spreading all over Syria and the regime was denying everything. They were just trying to say that there was nothing happening in Syria and we had just that responsibility that what we've seen in our own eyes should be recorded and documented. And for that reason, I just like start filming. And even like the first time I had the camera and then uh, it became like more, um, I will not say like very professional, but like I was trying to improve my skills and my experience with the camera. And until the last minute when we were displaced out of Aleppo, I had no idea about how like where to use this material or if, even if this like material will be used in a film or something i was just trying to survive to make this story also survive and in terms of survival do you think kind of having the kind of phone or the camera as a cipher between you and the action that allowed you kind of a sense of kind of personal relief to in a way when you look through the lens you're immediately even distancing yourself a tiny bit because it's giving you a sense of kind of an odd sense of security was that ever something that was something that you relied on like uh like unfortunately or fortunately i don't know like really what the right thing to feel about this but it's not at all uh i got this question so many times from so many uh, like journalists who've been that experience before but it was like not my case because when i'm turning the camera off or even when I'm behind the camera, I know that my whole life is uh, like in that place. Uh, I had my daughter, I had my husband, all of these people who I, I'm living with, I'm, I'm not just coming to film them and then leave. I know that like I'm, I'm stuck with them forever in that situation. So I just need to, to know that, you know, like I'm sharing with them all of this experience. So it will be stay forever with me. Um, so I felt like more responsibility and more being involved because like even Hamza, my husband or any person uh, around me who had um, any another uh, other uh, activity related to this, this situation, 
when they like finish that thing, for example, Hamza, when he was treating any like boy or uh, child or even like a woman or man, when he finished that action, it finished with him. While with me as a filmmaker, I always was able to be back to that moment exactly and see the same footage again and again. And being a mother in that situation make it like made it more uh, effective and more influencing my life and my uh, like uh, mind even. So I just wanted to talk about how you actually kind of met Ed and kind of when you came to the UK, kind of you must have had, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and might have wanted to know, um, kind of you know, have in your head that this is a piece of work that's an important film, but did you know in your head then that you wanted it to be a documentary or did you think this could be episodic? This could perhaps be, you know, a series of kind of programs or did you know immediately this is something you want to do and then how did you find Ed? Uh, like right after we left Aleppo, I came like maybe one month later, I came to the UK for the first time to attend the RTS award with the Channel 4 News. And that trip was the first time for me like to get out and start to speak about what I have. Uh, I didn't know at all like what we will do in this material, but I was sure that there's something important should be out from this material. Um, I uh, pitched the idea to uh, Channel 4 News and there was literally no idea. It was like just, this is what I have, you know everything about the story. And we've been working together for one year and a half before we start with Forsama. And from Channel 4 News, we have like Niveen and Ben who were uh, very close to me and to my story. And when we had that, like, uh, just we, 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 I've showed them some of this material and we've never had even chance to speak a lot about what I was doing inside Aleppo. So they knew just part of the stories, which we, some of them we, we used at, uh, on Channel 4 News in their program. And when they've seen this material, uh, they introduced me to Ed and to Channel 4. Um, Siobhan, who was also like close friends to Ed. And we had four of us, like we, we sat down for the first time chatting about what possibility of this material could be. And even like I would say like a month after we started the conversation, we didn't know what we will be. But between me and Ed, we were like thinking just, we wanna do the best thing for this material. And it was like very obvious that it's not just like a small story and everyone agreed about that. and. Like then when, when we start working together, we were just like trying to make, uh, be very flexible and be very open to any uh, possibility of like how big this material could be. I'll come back to you now, Ed. Um, in terms of coming, um, coming to terms with kind of how big this material could be and the impact that it could have, um, in all filmmaking senses, I use the word entertain in the loosest sense, but you know, a film is there to kind of, you know, in a way educate, but also keep you engaged in some way. So how did you and Wad work together to find the core of what that would be and knowing what would engage a kind of wide reaching audience? We both came with our own perspectives. I was coming from uh, the perspective of a Western audience trying to think about how would people emotionally engage with this incredible story. And Wad obviously had the insider's point of view. She knew what they'd lived through. And really, in the simplest way I can describe it, it was a debate between our two points of view. So I was saying, this is what, how I think something should be framed in order to give the audience access and allow them to connect with it. And Wad was saying, well, this was what mattered to us. It allowed us to whittle it down until we had 
the essence that we felt would work for both audiences, both the people who'd lived through it and the people who are coming to it for the first time. And then both kind of Wad and Ed, um, I'll come to Wad first in terms of working with um, other, finding other um, heads of department, kind of finding people to work with that you know that would deliver the kind of key messages that you and Ed were wanting to. Um, how did you both work together to kind of find the right people that would understand what you're trying to communicate and how do you then kind of bring them in and work through that process and then I'll come to Nanita afterwards about how she kind of worked on you and kind of that incredible score for the film. Uh, you will say like we were very lucky about so many choices and we, we trust each other first and we know that everyone who's coming to work on this project uh, like we, we need to feel about how they are passionate about the story, how they are really care, not just about like making a film or like being part in the film in any way or another, but also they are sharing in one way the, the issue that I have. And like, this is not just a film, this is a life and this is people uh, like life and this people's story. And in so many places, yeah, there's so many films which they share the same thing. But this is for me as personal as it, it was. So it's very like sensitive in so many places. Uh, like we uh, we had really amazing team from ITN Channel 4 News, Channel 4 and Frontline. And we have so many amazing, from the editors, we have uh, Simon and Chloe and Nanita who's worked also on the music and her husband also who did an amazing job with us. Uh, like so many people who were really th through these two years and even now, like it's been now one year uh, tuning, uh, like touring with the film around and sharing with so many distribution, distributors all over the world. Like we really felt that so many people of them, they are not just like working, but also it's they, this story touched them. And that was very obvious in so many conversations. Um, we had some like few bad experience through this year, but I would say like most of the team were really, really amazing and we were very happy to work with them. And I can't like imagine, you know, like to work with any people anymore later in any other film, they would be like mostly from the same team. You have your team now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nanita, I want to come to you now. Um, kind of Wad mentioned just now that obviously it is kind of, it's a, the most human story that, you know, that you could possibly ever see and kind of receiving that footage and trying to make the balance between kind of the humanity of it, the ambient, dejected sound of the film and incorporating kind of your own beat and rhythm to it. And I just want you to talk through kind of how, you know, again, the first things that crossed your mind when you saw the footage and then what you worked with to create that amazing score. Sure, Maria. Um, well, basically I got, I was involved on the film for the duration of the edit, which was about 18 months uh, duration. Um, and I remember Ed sending me a few rough scenes, uh, very early uh, pre-edited scenes. Uh, they'd only been in the edit for about two or three weeks into the process, three or four weeks, I think. And um, I immediately connected to it because I've worked on a lot of dark, subjects uh, dark subjects have a tendency to gravitate towards me um, so i uh, i found it incredibly moving and powerful even in its early raw state 
and uh, I, of course I didn't know the entire story uh, and so I went to meet Ed and the editor and I remember seeing Wad sitting on the floor I think it was it was very hot weather outside and she was sitting on the floor of the cutting room eating ice cream or something and and joking and laughing and I and I thought Wad you're alive you know that was that was incredibly moving for me and so that began the journey so the the initial brief um, if you can call it that from from Ed was to write a, a fairly conventional western Hollywood Esque cinematic score. So I began writing a lot of tracks. Uh, we went back and forth with a lot of reference tracks, guide tracks, and um, and so that that process began. Um, I think I wrote about seventy or eighty uh, full themes, and that went on for about three or four months, I believe, and then there reached a hiatus in the edit, uh, a slight hiatus where. Uh, you know, the, the, the film changed narrative um, and, and it was taking a, because this is a found footage film in many respects, it took a long time for the, the film to find its true voice and as a result for the music to find its true voice. So when the decision was eventually made to make this a first person narrative and to make it because it's it's an epic story, you know. It it's the it, it the music has to capture the onslaught of angst and fear and tragedy and hope and and that feeling of pathos that's so prevalent through the film. So when um, the decision was made to whether the true spinal cord of the film is this relationship between a mother and child and it's and it's a love letter between Wyatt and Summer, then of course the film became much more intimate and uh, against this epic, incredible epic backdrop and uh, of, you know, atrocities and, and horror and, and the Syrian uprising. And so the music no longer worked. And so then we began the second phase, if you like, of stripping the music back. And I think I learned a lot from the process of working on this film and it was, it, you know, silence is also very important. Silence is as important as music, where you place music in the film, where you don't. And so there was a lot of toing and froing. And I gave, I worked a lot with Ed, uh, but also I felt this incredible sense of responsibility uh, to do the film and Wad's life story justice. So I've, I've never worked on a film where, uh, you know, I'm working with a director who's also filmed it and she's in the film. And, and then of course it's true and it's a documentary. So, so I really felt that sense of responsibility. And eventually um, we, um, we were working a lot with stems. So I, would, I delivered a lot of music, which were then broken down into their elements. So Ed spent a lot of time with uh, Simon and Chloe, the editors, working with the material that I had given them. And um, one of the other key elements um, that uh, where the music does, I feel sort of does justice to the story is the use of a Syrian violinist, uh, Ala Ashid, 
who uh, we brought on board. And he, um, his playing is incredibly raw and gritty and edgy. And it, in, for me, at least, it serves as the aching heart of Aleppo, you know, in terms of the, uh, in terms of being true to the story. So it immediately places you there. And it's not pure and clean and classical. It's, it's, it, it's a true representation of the, 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 the essence of Aleppo in terms of the music, anyway. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Ed. <laughs> well, that was a, a brilliant summary. I was just, you were taking me back through all those glorious months we spent together. But, I know, um, yeah. Yeah, um, it, was inter it was interesting, as you say, because I think, you know, um, when you're dealing with uh, so much material and such a huge story, uh, that process of simplification is what the film, what took so long to get the film down to its essence. And as you say, the same thing happened with the music. And in the end, it was, it was the simplicity of the music, I think, that um, served the story so well. Yes, I mean, there are some key scenes. Uh, and in fact, it became quite a minimalist score. And despite the minimalism and what may feel like a sparse score, I think the the placement of every note and every beat has this huge significance in not over manipulating or overselling the storytelling to the audience. So there are, I think, some of the most powerful scenes in the film, two of the most powerful scenes in the film don't actually have music on them. And, I, and we, we had music over those moments for example with the the two young brothers um uh, mourning over the loss of their of of their brother in the hospital and there is no music there but i think maybe we we initially did have cues playing over those scenes and and it just didn't work it was just too powerful the the footage I think what's key here is that the footage and the material is so powerful that you don't need music um, but where you do have music then elevates it or enhances the the it's one of the tools where you can really move the audience uh, it, it has an impact so for me I think one of the most powerful scenes is when Sama is born and Wired is very procedurally saying, okay, it's time to go where I'm going to give birth now. Let's go to the hospital. And then Afra and someone else are standing outside the, the room and you hear Sama crying and then suddenly the music is allowed to breathe. And uh, and it, it sort of it's the culmination of all those that tension that's been built up and you have this emotional release. And I think when Hamza holds Wad's hand and they're uh, and they're looking into each other's eyes is one of the most powerful moments for me because it's this incredible release halfway through the film and um, and the music supports it, but is never allowed to dominate and, and take over. I think so much what you said kind of just in the just the idea of moments to breathe is something that kind of the beauty of the film kind of lives sometimes in those moments to breathe and those kind of moments of respite and moments of 
kind of actual um, everyday kind of quotidian life that we have. Um, Nanita, you picked up, you said something earlier on the idea of finding out this would be a first person narrative and also a love letter, um, perhaps set against the backdrop of war in a way. Um, when did Wad and Ed, when did you both realise that that's what the story was? It was essentially, you know, it was his first person narrative set and a love letter set against kind of, not that the war, you know, it's obviously, it's a kind of the most integral part of it, but it is the backdrop to kind of the integral part of the film. Um, I don't know if Wad, if you want to answer to that first. Um, I would say like uh, the film never had like was something like a war film or something because from the beginning we know that this material and this stories has so much personal stuff and have so much like close uh, like not to the front line but also to the people life to the experience of living through that uh, like uh, situation but also we didn't get the uh, love letter for an, for an example or even it wasn't very clear as for some idea until uh, two thirds through the process of working on the film. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, when we start working together, me and Edward, we were just like, like literally introducing ourselves and our new perspective as someone who, for me, just left uh, my city and for Edward, for someone who now entered that life and gets through all these details. We were both of us knowing my life more and trying to process that through this, uh, let's say, like two years of working together and be very close, uh, like in, in the film, in the story, in the details, and even to be me, myself, as someone who I've never experienced anything as that work before, and now I'm, I should like deal with this as director. And I've never even like had that experience to work uh, on this uh, process before. And I was trying even to learn from Ed during these two years. So for this, like all these complicated things, we were just trying to deal with the story and take that uh, like honest perspective about what we, what I've went through and what we want both as directors to work on this story. And as I mentioned, like after one year and a half of working together on this, we, had the idea of Forsama. And I will leave it to you, Ed. But <laughs> I mean, I, th I think the simple thing to say is that, you know, especially in documentary, um, the film knows what it wants to be. And we as directors are trying to listen to the film and listen to the material and find the best form of expression, the way in which it wants to tell itself. And, you know, in all this process, like Wad had filmed for five years and then we worked together for two years, but the idea of Forsama happened in like an hour when we were sitting in a cafe and it was just suddenly this, this key, just like an epiphany, a flash of inspiration where it was sort of thinking, well, that your life was Forsama and the whole struggle in Syria was for Sama and for the children and the future of Syria. And even the way that Wad had shot it, there was such a conversation within the footage from the moment she was pregnant with this like life that was growing inside her and then this wonderful baby that appeared. And it just was like, yeah, I mean, we were just looking at each other saying, this, this film is for Sama. Everything is for Sama. And, and that unlocks, you know, the narrative and, and the way in which the film should be told. Um, you've probably been asked this many, many times, so apologies. But I want to ask about the very notion of film being an agent for change. 
um, and how for all of you this film has been aging for change and then um, and obviously was that an intention to kind of act as a kind of catalyst for more people to kind of really know the truth um, and what can people do now knowing kind of on a really personal level kind of the truth that is still happening like to be honest uh, when we start working on the film um like i had no like i don't know how to say this but we've been told a lot that no one will come to watch another syrian film and that's the phrase exactly how we even almost like believe that so when we were working on the film we knew that this is a very important story at least for me at least for the people who uh, i lived with at least for the syrian people who they want to save that story and then we were trying to like you know do our best to, to this but when we uh, the first screening we had uh, at south by southwest in austin in america we both me and ed we were sitting uh, uh, like with the audience waiting for how many people will leave before the film will be ended and uh, we like we believe so much in the story and in the film as a film but we've never knew how people will react to this and we were really shocked how people got the film from the first screening and we started to see this through every screening coming uh, like later and from people reaction after the screening when so many people ask us like what can we do and for that, we launched our impact campaign called Action for Sama. And we start to have that hope who really like being created because of the amazing reaction from the people. Um, I know that I should have said at the top that we will be going out to kind of questions for everyone that's listening in. So I'm going to come to kind of everyone in two minutes. So if you can get your questions ready, all of those people um, sitting, um, in at home um all of you so maybe i'll come to uh ed first but then i'll talk about kind of your we're going to have questions from filmmakers at home that will be kind of probably from a more technical level but i want to talk kind of in terms of your tips for documentary filmmaking um ed from your point of view with Fasama, kind of when you um have kind of hundreds of hours of footage to go through kind of what is the first thing that kind of a filmmaker should think about when they're faced with that? I think the key thing that I say to everyone who wants to get into documentary and it's an exciting time because so many people want to make documentaries now is you've got to know what, why you're telling this story. Like what are you, what is your position on the material that you're dealing with? And this comes back to your question about change. You know, I, I felt from very early on in the Syrian revolution that something that we all had a stake in what was happening in Syria and that it would affect all our lives and that we needed to stand with people like Wad and Hamza who were peacefully protesting for their freedom. And that was the, that was the guiding light so that when we arrived at all of that footage, as you say, it was like, this is what people need to feel at the end of this film. They need to go away with a sense of that could be me in that situation and oh my god how have we, we allowed this tragedy to unfold on our watch and and having that knowing what your position is on the material it helps you to understand the emotion and that that you want your story to tell and i think that helps you to work out to navigate what's important and what's not 
Um, Nanita, you said it so beautifully in knowing kind of when to have those moments of silence. Um, when it comes to kind of scoring a film and especially scoring a documentary, um, what would you say are the key things kind of to kind of what, what when, when do you know what those breathing points are? You know, is it intuition or is there kind of a way of kind of learning how to do that? Okay, so for me, I want, I tend to inhabit the characters, whether it, whether they're, whether it's documentary or fiction. I think it's really important to put myself into their shoes and to know whose perspective, uh, what's the perspective of the scene, whose point of view am I, am I trying to tell the story of. So music can be an incredibly powerful tool in, you know, as uh, as as um, alongside the crafting of the film and the editing and the narrative and the the wow. script and the storytelling, I think uh, music also has a role in 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 so much as you want to take the viewer on an emotional journey from the start to the end of the film, and and music can do the same. I want to make the audience feel something, um, but restraint was particularly key in this in this film um, where we didn't want to over manipulate the audience um, at, uh, and I think it's very easy for a composer to want to over uh, over egg things musically and I think the hardest thing to do can be to hold back and that's just through trial and error because um, uh, you know, silence is important. You know, sometimes diegetic uh, sounds, sound effects are incredibly important. The the quality of the sound overall in the film was quite poor at times. And so, you know, sometimes you're, we were blurring the lines between music and sound design. Uh, sound design is incredibly powerful. So there's, there's one scene in the film where... Um, they're driving uh, through the streets of Aleppo and there is bombing and shelling going on. And we originally had a very rich theme, very you know, full of tension and suspense. It was almost like a, a Hollywood action uh, driving drama scene. And eventually we stripped it back to literally one beat. And it was like a drum beat that was like a heartbeat. And you didn't know whether you were listening to music or whether you were listening to the shelling and but it felt part of the soundscape and it helped to tell that story to to drive things along so i think subtlety restraint um knowing uh, whose point of view you're trying to um come across in um uh in a, in the scene taking the viewer on an emotional dynamic arc in the same way that the structure of the film does, uh, where the end of the film was the, the last four minutes of the film, the music is allowed to breathe. And it's a, it's a, a variation of a song that uh, Wad was very, uh, it was very a personal Syrian folk song. And she asked me to do a, a version of that. Um, so, and and it's you, all the tension and the emotions that are built up through the whole film are allowed to be released at the end of the film with the beautiful montage and this piece of music that that's that plays through 
Um, so hopefully by the time you've reached the end, you're, you're just, you've got this huge buildup of, uh, of a, a pool of emotions that um, hopefully are very uplifting and um, wad, you know, it's an incredible honor to hopefully have done some kind of justice to your story. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and Wad, um, hopefully we will see a next film very soon from you. Um, you have done a very personal first person narrative. Um, hopefully, you, yes, but not yeah. very soon. <laughs> in the no. future, later. You have you have made films in extremely precarious situations before. Same now, exactly. <laughs> um, and do you think that kind of when you uh, what are, yeah, what are you working on? And then, you know, the idea of a first-person narrative for kind of other documentary filmmakers out there, what would be your kind of key toolkit for documentary filmmakers in, t in terms of making that first-person narrative? You know, it's extremely kind of brave in the terms of laying yourself out there for the world to see kind of, yeah, what would the tips be kind of in doing that? I will say like, literally don't do it alone that's my, my first like advice and suggestion for anyone don't do it alone like have a partner have a like a friend have a person who you really trust and like no one could survive in this process alone i think that's what our like experience was through this uh, film like as a if if you were the person who telling the story and it's your story you really need someone outsider who can really take you back in so many places and support you and take like some hard decision in some places where you really can't even judge what the right and the wrong things to do and if you are the other person like who are trying to support someone else to tell their own story yeah like please 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 build that trust and be very uh, like honest with the person who you are working with. Um, I think in hoping in my next film, uh, which I, I hope that I can really work with someone and try to help someone else to tell their own stories. I, I, I felt that my experience in Forsema, it wasn't just like as a director or as a person who lived through this, but also it taught me so many things for the whole of my life. And I really hope to be useful from this in so many other stories later. Okay, I'm going to open it up to Q&A participants now. I think we've got about 15 minutes left. So um, the questions want to come in. There is one here about editing. Um, did you worry about the topic at, at hand and the conflict would look very different by the time the film came out? Was it anything you had to change for this reason? Um, I don't know. Ed? Slide. I could jump in on that one. I think, you know, the, the very sad thing about um, the nature of what's happened in Syria and the crimes that have been committed by the Assad regime and the Russians is that even though the events in the film um, were happened three years before the film actually came out in the world, exactly the same crimes and the same atrocities were being committed by the same parties for the same reasons. And so actually it was... It, it was a means of showing to people what was going on, you know, at the time that the film was out in cinemas. And we could say to audiences, actually, exactly what you've seen in the film is happening tonight while you're in the cinema. 
And that is the tragedy of what's happened in Syria. And so really we knew that what WAD had captured was the truth of the Syrian conflict and that experience. And, and so we knew it would be as relevant when the film came out as when it was first filmed. Um, WAD, we have a question for you. Um, the footage you captured in this film is incredibly powerful and important. Um, how did you keep the footage safe um, and protect it in such a dangerous situation? Actually, uh, I was just lucky. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry to tell that to every filmmaker. <laughs> like, I had no backup for any video in the material, and I didn't know that, like, I should do this, or it's really like what that's what filmmakers outside are doing. And um, I know it was like very big mistake, and I was lucky that yeah, most of the my material survived, but uh, like. Of course, for my next or what I'm trying to do now with everyone who's still inside Syria, telling them that you should have copies for this. It's not that easy, I know. And it's, I know also like that situation, you just like try to survive with the least you can have. But yeah, it was like very big mistake. And I know like Ed Face, when he asked me like, do you have backup for your material? And I was like, <laughs> why? And I know, but sorry. That's what. What, what formats did you have the footage on? Um, like some of them, I can like tell you maybe, and you can answer also about this. <laughs> every format available in every camera. Like I had uh, one camera during the years, but like different. Like I said, one camera every time, but different kind of cameras during the years. Uh, so we have. Uh, like M MP4 something, uh, we have, Ed, you can help me in this. Yeah, I mean, like, so, it was... So much different things. We Every we single spend, format, yeah, yeah like exactly. you say, almost every different frame rate. I mean, our, we had an amazing uh, online editor, a guy called Nick Bays, and, oh, my God, he spent something like three weeks trying to make all this footage relate to each other on the timeline. Yeah. He was... He, thankfully he was bald when he started the project otherwise he would have lost all his hair during the process um and that was and one he of the was asking me about this and i was like i don't know this is the sony camera i have no idea what <laughs> format on it and i've never like really knew that when i was filming but now i know i have all the experience for my next one and it was terrifying there was there was a moment when uh, we had a problem with one of the hard drives and we yeah. thought that there was an issue and that was like nine months of life that was like at stake in that one drive, which thankfully we managed to recover. We've actually got another kind of frame um, question coming from Jackie Tebow, um, again saying it's an incredibly touching film. Um, sorry for the technical question, but she couldn't help notice the 2.35 aspect ratio. She wondered when the decision was made to make it 16 by nine. Uh, yeah, the decision- How you felt about reframing it, yeah. The reason why we did that actually in the aspect ratio, that was it was something to do with the fact that it had been shot on so many different formats. And so by putting it into that two, uh, two three, five aspect ratio, it allowed us to sort of standardize the image um, so that we didn't have all the different aspect ratios on the different cameras. And it also just gave it, it I don't think it detracted from the authenticity of the footage. You couldn't detract from the authenticity, but it did uh, just elevate it into a sort of cinematic, aesthetic space and I think that was an important thing as well because we we and WAD and the whole team felt right from the beginning that this was a piece of cinema 
and we just wanted to communicate that message as much as possible in the aesthetic we used. Um, we've got a few more minutes if people got more questions do um, send them in. In terms of it then obviously being a piece of cinema, have you noticed um, a difference in kind of the collective experience of when people are watching it? Is there kind of a different collective reaction? Nanita, we'll come to you on that. Obviously with the score kind of being played out in the fact that it has been so cinematic. And yeah, what's the impact been? Um, I remember the first time I saw it with an audience was in Cannes. And uh, I had no idea whether the film would work. I think with the rest of the team had been to South by Southwest and uh, seen it with an audience for the first time there. But sitting in the cinema in Cannes with uh, a collective audience, it was, uh, of course, I've seen the footage thousands of times, you know, and I was intimate with every frame of the film and I'd been working on it up until uh, January, February. So I literally stopped, I think, about a couple of months before it was screened at Cannes and to see people respond to it in a in such an emotive way and to see grown men around me crying um that made me realize that i think okay the message is getting across to people so um so that was an incredibly powerful moment and then you know there there seemed to be consistently two emotional responses to audiences um around the world one was uh coming out of the cinema it is stunned silence um where people couldn't say anything couldn't communicate and and then the other extreme was were tears and but i think i think the most rewarding uh come away from the film from audiences has been that they feel mobilized to want to do something, to help, to share, to spread the word, uh, to make other people aware about the situation in Syria. And um, I think that was the, the most successful, powerful come away from audiences on this. Just had um, another question come through from Francisco. So kind of, again, it's an audience-based question, but. He was saying, um, amazing film, thank you for making it. Um, has the film been received differently in different countries or has the reception been um, more or less the same? I will say that this is one of the things which really make me very um, like happy and also like shocked at the same time because I feel that like the film has the same reaction exactly in all the places we went to and even like which place we, we, where we didn't even uh, went, but we got like so many messages. Um, I felt that all the people over the world are united. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter like what you experience had before, but it's when you look at this film, you are just like as a human being and you can see like the people who are in the film as just a human being and you have the same connection exactly. Uh, I know like maybe Ed, you can also add about this, but it's literally, that's what we got from that experience of showing the film in so many places from Mexico to Japan, to Germany, to like so many places, they were all the same people exactly. 
Yeah, and it just gave us hope, you know. It was, it was just an incredible thing to see people from so many different walks of life who had no knowledge and no connection with Syria, just so engaged, so moved by Wad and Hamza and Sama's story. Uh, it just made you think, you know, so many people say that, that we live in an apathetic world and hopefully our experience on Fosama says it's not the case and maybe even this crisis right now is showing everybody that actually we all need to, we're all in it together. Um, we have had another question come through from, from Raluca Petra. Um, I was so touched by this film. Could you talk a bit about how you worked with the editors on it? Would you talk about the overall structure and particular scenes that they put together by themselves? Thank you. I will start quickly and then Ed, you can keep going <laughs> in this. Uh, like first we start, me and Edward together to watch all the material and trying to have more conversation about behind the scenes and what, why we did this and how we did that. And so many questions like in every details of the film. And then uh, I was at that time still living in Turkey. So Edward started with Simon in, uh, in IT and uh, working on the first like rough cut. I was with them in some <clears throat> uh, like phone calls, Skype calls, some like just conversation later when they finish. And then uh, I was able to, came, to come to London uh, for like three trips, everyone like for a week, just try to be with them as much as I can. And then, uh, even Ed came once to Turkey again, uh, and then uh, I moved to London in the mid of 2018. And that's when we had like, we had the first version uh, of the film where we thought that this is just like uh, a basic uh, plan and let's work on this. And that's when we start like working more about the structure of the film, how we can uh, tell the story in the like, now we have the story, but now we, we need to work on it. Uh, Ed, do you want to continue? Yeah, I mean, it's a, big, it's a big subject. I would say there was two, two key things. Number one was, you know, we, we followed the Goddard maxim that every story has the beginning, middle and end, but not necessarily in that order. And that was what was so exciting about the Forsama concept was it, it, it gave us control of the narrative. The previous versions that Wad is referring to were told in a chronological way. They started at the beginning of her story and just went through year by year. But when we had the For Sama idea and it was addressed to Sama, then we could tell the film just as any story. The final thing I would say, some scenes it took us days to work on. And I think both Chloe and- <laughs> Yeah. And Chloe and Simon, they, they were such, we were very lucky in both of them because they had a, a slightly different mentality. Simon was, you know, maybe a, a more male editor in the sense that he wanted everything to be like bang, 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 like very dramatic and quite fastly cut. And one of Chloe's greatest gifts is she really allowed things to breathe. And she was, she would often say like, let's just let this shot or let's just let this scene play out on a single shot and let's just stay with this moment. And I think, the combination of those two sensibilities also gave the film its, edit, uh, its dynamism in its editing. So there are some moments where everything is very fast and dramatic and other moments that are a lot more peaceful. And then after that, uh, Wad and I would get involved and start saying, wait a minute, two frames back. And Wad was like, no, 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 three frames back. And we'd discuss that for about an hour. Um, a lot of perfectionists worked on this project. Did you have the same dynamism as two co-directors? Did the male-female perspective kind of influence each other with that as well? 
I would say like not a lot as a female or male, like it was really supportive in this issue, but we have so many other problems. <laughs> Sometimes when like Chloe, she was like, okay, I will go to do a cup of like tea, finish your conversation between Ed and Wad, and then I'm coming back. <laughs> but yeah. at the end, you know, like the best thing of this process, I will say that we were very flexible with each other. We were very honest. And that's what make us like really take longer time and take so many like fighting process. But at the end, we were both really like convinced about, yeah, what we have now is both are satisfied. Our editor also satisfied. Nanita also satisfied. And then like keep going to the um, like maximum of the team who were involved in this. But I would say like it's been very, very unique journey. Like, yeah. Difficult in some time, but amazing in the end. We've got the questions coming in thick and fast now. Okay, so the next one is Hannah Tuki. Wow, this is a really beautiful film. Did the making of the film ever cause conflict with the people around you, particularly with friends and family and those working in the hospital? And if so, how did you deal with that? I would say like uh, my whole life is related to this and it's not just a film even now. So I would say like uh, like what we what we went through in Syria and what we we know exactly what does that mean to lose someone and to lose a country and to lose a dream and at the same time to stuck in this and keep like going forever. And the film was one of the reasons why I'm still like living now and I'm still like having hope uh, and I'm still trying to find my way to do something to keep that fight going on so it's not just like a film for me and it's my life and it will be my life for forever. Um, we have um, I imagine you struggle between fictionalizing the film and keeping and respecting its authenticity can you talk a little bit more about it um, why did you feel like resisting that process? I didn't get the question. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So, I don't, yeah, resisting the process. I don't know. I think the question is more fictionalizing. I suppose you could never fictionalize it as a documentary. But I suppose adding elements to kind of perhaps create, a, create a, another narrative. I don't know. That doesn't make uh, quite sense. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that I don't know whether that person has actually seen the film because the whole point of it is it's not fictional in any way. And the whole uh, goal of the film and what you see in the film is a, a very truthful reflection of not only what Wad lived through, but what so many Syrians have been through. Um, so Wad, someone is asking about your next project. Um, they're asking if it, um, if you have enough kind of footage perhaps for another Syrian related film or are you going to go with something completely different and new and then the footage that you already have kind of are there any kind of you know yeah is there any kind of prospect doing anything with what you haven't used already so i would say like from the same footage or from that story i'm not uh, i don't think about anything like to do another story or something i think yeah for some i give uh, so much justice to what i lived through and to the footage of five years of my life. But I don't think I will use it again for any uh, like film or for now, I will say at least. But what uh, we were trying to do through uh, after the film was released, 
is to share this material as a war crimes with some people or some organization who are caring about the justice process. Uh, so we shared our uh, all the uh, footage related to the attacking hospitals and the injured at the hospitals with something called the triple IM uh, and its mechanism uh, to collect all the evidence to use it when they uh, in justice process. The same thing we are trying to build a case against the regime and Russia about uh, the deliberate attacking of hospitals and also we are using so many uh, material from the raw uh, footage that we have same used in the film. Uh, my next project will be uh, also about Syria, but it's totally different story, totally different like perspective, and it's not about me or related to my to anything I've done before. Uh, so that's it. And um, we'll take this one last question, and this is for all of you. Um, is there any particular part, particular part of the film that had a uh, particular kind of or strong impact on you kind of picking up key moment yeah i will say like in so many like the whole film for me is very important and yeah it's have very strong effect but the most thing for me and so far which i can't feel like okay to watch it at all is the uh the displacement the last bit of the film when we were forced to flee um there was so many like more strong and bad situation before but for me everything was bearable, bearable for me until we were forced to flee um, and there's that sentence when i um telling um as a voice over in the film uh, sama will you will you uh, forgive me for um uh, like leaving or will you blame me for staying um the opposite exactly so <laughs> will you Will you will you blame me for leaving or will you forgive me? Uh, this like this uh, part of the film, which I really um, all the time make me really feel bad a lot. Uh, some of the nice moments now also make me cry, and some of the very worst uh, footage I can I am able to watch it very um, like kind of okay. So, you know, like, it's still like very hard to process everything I went through and everything in the film, but I'm trying very hard to like, just think about the positive of the amazing reaction from the people all over the world about the film. Ed, I mean, there were so many moments, to be honest, you know, uh, going through all those hundreds of hours, there was so much that we couldn't even include in the film, which I will never forget some of the scenes of horror that were just too extreme, too graphic to show. Um, I think probably the, the scene that stays with me the most is the scene that stays with everyone the most is the bit where the baby who everyone you think is dead uh, breathes and starts crying and comes to life. I just, I, I, I think Alejandro Inirutu is a director I love. He described it as the only time a miracle has ever been captured on camera. And I just think it is, it's a metaphor for all of life. Like no matter how bad things look, hope and life can like spring eternal and so yeah that's the one that means the most to me. Nanita? Um, like Ed uh, and Wad, there are so many moments um, that the miracle baby as uh, Ed just described is incredibly powerful. The, the persimmon fruit with uh, Afra um, and the, the humour the unexpected humor in the film, the, the moments of lightness, uh, such a welcome 
release and relief every now and again. But I, I find it very difficult to watch the film now. Um, if when I have watched it um, and I, allow, I, I open myself up emotionally, I find it very difficult to watch it and not um, cry and, and get very emotional. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, it's, I, I just think um, the whole film for me is, is so incredibly powerful and, and impactful that, uh, um, you know, yeah, <laughs> um, I, I think um, there, there, are, there are just so many scenes uh, that, uh, that are incredible. Um, and to have that unwavering camera that never holds back is, uh, is something to behold really it's a it's it's about humanity i think you know and it, it just captures everything so beautifully so i i find it a very the whole thing a very moving experience when i when i do watch it and if there was ever a uh, more deserved after it is for this film for sam i want to thank you all for joining thank you us so much. this time thank you um stay safe Stay healthy, and um, this Q and A will be available. I just want to say hi from Afra, who's also here. Hi, <laughs> hi, Afra. <laughs> hi, <laughs> Afra. Do you have anything to add about taking being part of the film? Oh, listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but she. I just want to say hi now. Yeah, we live now together here in uh, that, that, yeah. That's uh, very. Very, the most important thing that we re, we re meet again, me and the wife, and now repeat the experience of the stage. And the kind of things, yeah. yeah. Well, you gave us some of the most beautiful comic moments of the film, you know. Yeah. Thank you for making us smile, kind of sometimes very hard times. Um, thank you all. Thank you so thank much. You. I'll see you on the other side. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.